You can't listen to someone say, this is the pathway, do it, because your pathway is going to end up be different. And you have to make the mistakes to course correct. And if you aren't putting in enough at-bats to get enough mistakes, you don't know where to go next, and you aren't learning from those valuable moments that end up steering the rest of your life, you know, and show up to bat time and time again. Don't fantasize about the one day when all the pieces are right, you'll be able to nail it because there's a sad chance that that day will never come. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. And today's guest is adventurer and travel filmmaker, Levi Allen. I've been friends with Levi now for several years in the YouTube space, but it's been really exciting for me to see his journey on YouTube. Levi is an incredibly talented filmmaker that has made some real inspiring films on both Vimeo and YouTube, and he was fortunate enough to meet Casey Neistat through a film series that he did on his channel. He's also transitioned his channel from one genre to another, and we talk about that on the podcast. And he's been able to make a living doing what he loves with his wife, Janelle, doing van life content. Before we get started, I want to remind you guys to go to polarpro.com and check out some of the incredible new filters we have in stock. The Peter McKinnon Series 2 filters have been unleashed to the world and they are truly incredible. With new additions of hard stops and diffusion built into the VND system, makes it one of a kind for the industry. Make sure to go to polarpro.com to learn more. All right, without any further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with Levi Allen. All right, so we are here today with the one and only my good friend Levi Allen, who is sitting in his van somewhere in the middle of the earth. Uh, what is up, my friend? How are you doing right now? And where are you? I'm doing really well, Dave. This is fun. Oh, this is gosh. the first podcast I've done. Oh, <laughs> Like I said, hey, buddy. as you hi. intro, this is Ryan. Say hi, Levi. Hi. <laughs> hey, you can't quite hear me, but it's good to see you. Say bye, Levi. Bye, Levi. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> I told oh, you. Good, I told you I need a recording sign. Uh, before we started, started recording, early. you said you need a recording sign on your door. I'm in my closet <laughs> in my house. So, um, but yeah, where were we? How are you? <laughs> Doing really well, man. Yeah, we are. Middle-ish Canada, not near where all those Canadian YouTubers are quite yet. We're a little west of that. <laughs> yeah. If you like pointed in the middle of Canada-ish, that's where most of the Canadian YouTube crew exists, <laughs> just outside of Toronto. And I'm like 21 hours from that still, which is mind-blowing. 21 hours? Yeah, because I'm 27 hours from my home already, and it's still going to be another 20 plus hours to get to where that other crew is, because... <laughs> Jeez. It's a uh, Canada is, is wide. It's funny. It's like Canada's as wide as as uh the US, but for some reason Americans think it's just like a state or something. So it's like, oh, all you Canadians just live around it's like no, like Texas and California couldn't be further apart. And like if you're from Texas, you don't just expect people from California to like be friends with you. Like it's the same thing. Canada is huge. <laughs> it's the classic it's the classic when you're talking to someone from the states and they're like oh you're from canada do you know insert whatever name it does it's it's like it's uh, yeah sorry i don't yeah. states are so small and cities are so small that uh often like if you know i'm from nashville and if you happen to know somebody from nashville chances are i might actually know that person but 
uh, right. LA is huge and that's not the case here at all. But, um, anyways, that's hilarious. I, I think the Canadian U S kind of dynamic is, is pretty entertaining and fun. There's so many great artists from Canada and, uh, we've interviewed a ton of Canadians on this show. We had Maddie, we had his editor, Matt, we had, uh, Lee Zavitz. We've had, um, who else? Uh, Becky and Chris. Be- oh, yeah. Becky and Chris are kind of Canadian, <laughs> Becky even and though Chris, they're in the States right now. Chris and Lizzie, Renee Ritchie, um, Tyler Stallman. The list goes on and on. This might as well be a Canadian show. <laughs> <laughs> you got to relocate, man. We've got free igloos up here. They don't come with phone lines, but there is igloos available. So just talk to your... Uh, oh, heck yeah. Just show up here with your dog sled and you're, you're laughing. <laughs> but, uh, Levi, uh, we've known each other now for, I guess my, almost my whole YouTube journey and, um, part of your, uh, part of yours as well. I, I had the luxury of meeting you back at NAB when the black magic came out. Um, you remember that? <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah. We were all standing around in a circle. You, uh, you were with Caleb Pike, uh, Caleb Wojcik, our mutual friend as well, and a couple other creators. And uh, that's where we met. And uh, yeah, we just hit it off and kind of been friends ever since. It's been a fun journey to see your career just explode. Um, you've had some in- incredible moments, some viral moments, uh, some ups, some downs, and we're going to talk about all that. So, <laughs> All of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of layers I I'm realizing to how we put content out there reflects what it is that you're doing in your life at the time. And the YouTube channel for me, when I like created it back in 2011, this channel that I'm on right now was always kind of that place where I would just share what I was currently doing and what interested me. And that, oh, that wasn't always like up to date or in sync with what exactly I was focused on with either the work I was doing with my production company or what my biggest motivations were at the time. So it's been a interesting dance to sometimes just be in a cycle of just uploading to upload and then remembering, right, like some of these videos actually don't align with what I care about. And I want to adjust that. And if you look across my trajectory, uh, I'm really bad at following the best practices, like all of the advice on uh, staying within your niche, like being very topical. I've kind of decided if I cared about that too much, I would not enjoy having my own channel. So, I mean, through a given year, I I think in a calendar year, you can see these shifts in what I do. Like if there's an event I get invited to around a camera launch, sometimes I'll post a video about, hey, this is, you guys ask me which cameras do I recommend? I'm currently using this one, but you're curious about this. So I'll make a video about it, but... I certainly don't make I don't make it videos about every camera. This is not what I do. <laughs> well, we had a blast in uh, we had a blast in Catalina together. Remember that you, me, and Connor just going up the mountain and reviewing the A sixty four hundred. That was a blast. Yeah, that was like that's one of the like four videos about cameras I've done. Like since then, which is like, <laughs> that, so I kind of just ebb and flow. Where I have to remember that people when they come into my world on YouTube, they don't always know like where I've come from and it's not, they're not always up to date with what I actually care about most because people only see what you're putting out presently. They don't always go into the backlog. So for me, it's kind of one of those things where I just uploaded a video today. That's kind of like getting back to my roots. I guess it was yesterday, but it's getting back, making sure that the roots of what I do filmmaking for is on the channel alive and well, which is, I really love following interesting people do cool things and putting that into video form. 
That's why I picked up a camera in the first place. That's why I still pick up cameras. And this YouTube byproduct is a piece of my life, but it's also, it's certainly not my ambition. Like <laughs> I don't have this like goal of being, <laughs> a, being a successful channel that in the, in the traditional sense of what successful channel means, my own version of concoction of success doesn't necessarily require the YouTube channel doing amazingly well. And I'm okay with that. But it's just like when you put, you can get in this grind with YouTube videos as you're publishing, you, you feel a responsibility to one, make a good thing that you like Two, hopefully the viewers like it as well. And then three, there's the game of YouTube of if you're uploading to the platform, you maybe should consider putting effort towards, Hey, can we optimize this so people find it? And that third one is usually what I put the least amount of effort towards. And I have to acknowledge if I thought about it, even 5% more, more people would be aware of the things I make and I make things for people. So that's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but certainly uh, through this journey, it's <laughs> not always been clear with what I'm putting out, what I actually care about most. And that's kind of what I'm, I, I would love to make sure that I am putting out stuff that I actually value deeply regularly that'd be really cool well you've had the luxury and, and i'm from this era too we're kind of roughly the same age uh i started my whole filmmaking journey in uh 2008 um right when the dslr revolution kind of happened i was lucky enough to get in right when the 5d mark ii came out and um you know, just fell in love with that. Vimeo was like everything back then. Uh, I had a staff pick that changed my career. I know you did as well. Um, and that era was a different time where it was just like, it was so, I'm kind of reminiscing because of course this is our perspective and we like it, but like, yeah. I feel like the new young filmmakers that are starting now, they're missing out because like when Vimeo was a thing, it was really all about the art. It was about the film. It was about the, like, if the film was good and it got seen by a Vimeo staff member, boom, Vimeo staff pick. And then the staff pick itself changes everything. Like I was getting calls left and right from companies because they saw the staff pick that I made. I got an opportunity to work for Google because of it. And I was only 19 years old at the time. So the whole thing like that doesn't really happen anymore on YouTube. You could make an incredible film, like something that you've just poured your blood, sweat and tears into that 10 years ago on Vimeo would have actually got a staff pick, would have got uh, recognition. It's, it was really like the Sundance of the internet in a way. I mean, it, it's definitely different, but um, <laughs> very different, but it was, it had this prestige and this filmmaker kind of um, like the, the views were way lower than what you would get on YouTube but the views meant more. The, every view was was somebody in the industry and it, it was a different time. I mean, can you reminisce or talk to me about Vimeo and um, that journey that you had as a filmmaker putting stuff out on there? Yeah, that was probably all the filmmakers that I looked up to when I was getting into this were posting on Vimeo and seeing their work on there was kind of like that North Star of to make finished pieces that felt... The way I feel when I watch those things, I would like to give other people that experience as well. And seeing those videos, that kind of, that staff pick cycle became like, oh, I watched probably a dozen careers get made off of the staff pick cycle and watch them just really gain that traction and become household names. And at the time, there's some of those like staple indie camera brands that would that would work with people like that. And it was all a lot of familiar faces. And 
it became a goal pretty early on of, whoa, that would be really fun to one, get something like a time-lapse slider sponsored. Like that was, that was one of like 17 hyperlapse back then. That was huge. 17 year old me. It was like, if I could get a sponsored slider and a staff pick, I am set. And you got a Kessler, you got to get a Kessler Cine slider. Yep. Yep. That was it. And, and so the staff pick benchmark there for me was one of those things that I looked at. And by the time my work had caught up to being staff pick worthy, uh, this at that time, the staff pick meant a whole lot less. So I got the badge, but I did not have the career repercussions that the people even two years before me experienced. And that was a really helpful lesson to me because I'm like, right, I, I, as someone who want to carve out a pathway to make things I like, am looking at other people's pathway and mine's not going to be the same. And I can't be bummed out if I don't experience the same bumps that other people did by getting some of the same badges just a couple, couple years later. That's not in Like I got staff pick of the month. I was fired up on it. I thought like, here's my career. It's set and loaded. And I realized, right. I didn't, I actually didn't get a single client project related to my, cause I launched my, uh, my first kind of main film called untethered. I launched that for free on Vimeo as kind of like the story behind that for me was for the longest time I'd been researching camera gear. I'd been looking at sliders. I'd been watching all the reviews. I was subscribed to everything that Philip Bloom did. And I'm like watching these FS 100 videos going like, man, I actually can't afford any of this. Like, why am I watching camera reviews of cameras that I have no business buying because I can't afford them? And why am I spending so much time worrying about gear? Like, why do I, why is that my fixation right now? Those were some of the first YouTube videos I ever made was like modding DIY camera rigs. Like camera rigs was a whole genre on YouTube. That's how I originally found Caleb Pike. (laughs) (laughs) He's great. And so like the, that camera rig genre was some of the first like YouTube views that I ever experienced that in my Hackintosh. But I hit this point of, I've had storyteller in my Instagram bio since 2009 and I haven't made a single piece that I personally go, that is good. I haven't made a single one. And after four or five years, you kind of go, I've just made eye candy. I've made cool camera tests. I've learned how to use Twixter. I've learned how to do slow motion. I'm figuring out how to rotoscope. I'm doing all these techniques, but the techniques aren't applied to anything that I care about. And I kind of had to face that and go, I believe I have what it takes to make something I like. Will I risk trying? Because to risk trying means you have to be okay that you don't like it. It means you have to be okay that you really care about something that other people don't. It means that you have to be okay with pouring your heart into something that you put out there into the world and it's to crickets. Like that whole, you have to be okay. You basically have to be okay to face rejection in the deepest sense if you put out something that you actually try to care about, like passivity is like the, the name of the game for, for some people where it's just, it's not, it's not cool to care <laughs> where it's, <laughs> I care deeply about the things that I, that I spend my time on. And I, and I want those to matter and I want to make meaningful work. And I want, I want the viewers who watch it to feel something and the, I care. And I had reached this point where I was like, all I've made is eye candy. And that's where untethered came out where I like, spent six months on this film and I was like, no one's going to pay me to make this. And if I'm going to go all in on filmmaking, I've got to start with a project that I actually like, because if I wait for someone to give me permission for that, 
I'm going to end up 10 years down the road, just grinding it out with client work. And I'm going to be very disappointed. Wow. I think a lot of people can resonate with that. And, and I, for one, definitely do. Um, and once you get into work, whether you're a freelancer, shooting weddings, commercial projects, or um, in my case now, making gear reviews on a weekly basis, it becomes a cycle. And as a creative, like the whole point of, of at least for me, and I know for you, of doing this was the art was the film the filmmaking and the the beauty of of the work and we just kind of have to navigate like okay well i'm not going to be a starving artist so i have to figure out ways to make money so we we do commercial projects we shoot weddings we do this and that but like having the courage to do that and just carve out the time to actually make something for yourself um it's so valuable and so important and i think when you have you know, one or two of those projects a year, if not, if you can do them one once a month or every other month, that's great. Those types of projects are what kind of give you that fire to, to go out there and shoot a wedding and, and not like be so depressed about it because like, you know, when you get home, you can keep working on the project that you love, you know? <laughs> yeah. I call that, I call that category technician style work where you can show up with your skill set, leverage it for, for value and walk away knowing that you're doing it and you want to make a good thing for the people you're working for, but knowing that you're doing this as a technician to generate value money in this case, to then invest right back into your own stuff. Like if I ever find myself in that cycle of all that's on the horizon is technician related things that just takes the wind right out of my sails. And I lose all the, all the purpose behind it. It's like, wait, why, why am I doing this? What is the reason? Do I want to keep grinding corporate for what? And when the, when it's clear to me the reason why I'm doing it, I'll, man, heck, I'll, I'll flip burgers. I'll go shovel at a farm. I'll do whatever it takes. And it just so happens that in the filmmaking world, you can leverage that skill set for a decent day rate. And if you can flip that around, that's sometimes a great exchange. But then other times it's not. It's like if that's stealing your creative drive, Sometimes it's just as worthwhile to keep that nine to five and then just take unpaid leave whenever it, whenever it matters. When I tackled this first, first uh, when I actually was like, okay, I'm going to make untethered. I had to take unpaid leave from work to do it. And I was like, I will take these eight days. I can't afford to not make money, but I got to do it. And, and in that instance, uh, in the months that followed, it was a struggle because it's like, I now have this footage, but where do I edit it? Because I don't have a powerful enough computer. And I had to end up like, uh, I bought this van that we're in right now, five years ago. And it was a metal delivery van. And I slept in it in the, in the back suburbs of Vancouver, kind of parked in and behind this building. And then I would bike into a downtown studio and I'd work for the studio during the day. And then in the evening when everyone else went home, I had the edit bay. And it was like, that's how I could make it work. And for some people, that grind of editing for someone else during the day and then editing your own thing, you, like you can't sustain that. But for me, it was kind of like, I was so driven to just finish this thing. I was like, I'll do whatever it takes. But it might've been more worthwhile for me to grind it out in a, in, a in a day job where you don't feel burnt out on the same thing you want to do for yourself. Like that's sometimes the quickest way to kill your passion. It's like, man, I'm just using this to make money and at the end of the day, I have no motivation for my own things. It's like, if that's the case, you got to switch it up because yikes. When I first got married, we were struggling with my freelance up and down life. And so I applied for a job 
Uh, and it was a video related job, but it was pretty mindless. Um, and because of that job, I got into YouTube because I was going so crazy at my job. I needed some sort of creative outlet. And so every day at lunch, I would bring, I forced myself to make a sandwich and bring chips and, and eat at my desk for that whole hour during lunch, I would edit. And then after work, I would shoot, you know, once everybody left and I would utilize the studio space that we had, um, and by having that job, I I don't have any regrets. I, I didn't enjoy my time there. I made some great friends, however, if they're listening. Hi, guys. You've told um, me about this experience, and I'm, I'm smiling <laughs> in my heart right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but because of the lack of brain power that was being used at my job, I was able to f- kind of throughout my day think about things, write in my notes, you know, come up with new ideas. And sometimes having, you know, uh, I, I cut grass one time for a month because I needed some extra money. And that was great. Like doing something that you can kind of do on autopilot. Like I just sat on a lawnmower and just listened to podcasts or like music and just be creative. Those types of jobs can actually be something, you know, you pay your bills with it, but it can be valuable because uh, throughout your day, you can actually still use brain power to think about what you want to work on. Yeah, for me, I built the career off bike shop work. Because as you're wrenching away on bikes, it's engaging physical hand skills. And so your your body can be doing something engaging. You're moving around. And the whole time my gears are just turning. Uh, you know, no what pun kind intended. Of, <laughs> I walked straight into that one without even realizing it. Literally, the gears metaphorically and physically are turning in my brain. And I got in trouble a couple of times because I, I got accused of being a space case at work of just being like not physically present. And that uh-huh. was the truth. <laughs> I'm like, I'm literally trading my time for money right here. And, and if you don't want me to do that, that is okay. I'll go, I will go work somewhere else because I need to be able to be thinking as I'm wrenching on stuff. And if you don't like that, Mm -hmm. then we got to, and I transitioned from one (laughs) shop to another one because I, they wouldn't let me take time off in the summer and I needed to. So it's like, this to me is secondary. And if you don't want someone who can fill in part-time days, then I guess you need someone else. I I will go. And that, and that was the best shift I ever made to a shop that let me go. These are the weeks and weekends I need off to go film these bike events. Is that cool? And they're like, yeah, whenever you come in, just work and it's fine. And that was a really good pivot for me. If Uber Eats was a thing when I was like a teenager, I would have been all about that. Like the fact that you can just kind of open your app and work whenever you want, uh, with no real boss involved. Right. If I had a bike and I could do it from a bike in a city, game over. (laughs) I had a paper route. I I worked in bike shops. Like I combining those two, it's like a bike route, paper route. Oh man, that would be except food (laughs) and angry customers. I, uh, I do think you and I were fortunate to be able to do a lot of this foundational work, uh, in our early age. Um, so if you're listening and you're fresh out of high school, take advantage of this time because you and I both can now say as married men with kids, Things change as you get older. Um, it is my my priorities have completely shifted. I could absolutely carve out probably two hours a day on other personal projects, but now I could care less. I want to spend time with my kids and my family, and uh, that is what's ultimately most important for me personally right now. And those extra two hours a day that I'm spending with my children, uh, when I was younger, was spent on on all these things. So. Take advantage of the time when you got it. Um, but if you are in our stage here, um, 
you know, I think having good conversations with your family, making sure your significant other is, is on board. Uh, my dad, uh, who's an artist as well, he would do Wednesdays was his day. And my mom understood Wednesday night, Rick goes into the studio and he makes records for himself and that's all he does. And, uh, by doing that, he was able to make his first solo album while also having a full-time job, you know, nine to five. So, um, pick a day, you know, make sure you guys have that understanding because things change as you get older and have kids. So, yeah, if you aren't putting the time on the calendar, then it's not important to you. Like you can just stay in your, there's a massive difference between saying you value something and your actions showing what you value. And they're, they, they actually need two different words. Cause it's like, you can say, I really value making my own work, but if your schedule never never, if it's never on the schedule, then you actually don't, it's not a value. It's a, it's an ideal. It's this concept that you're chasing after. But you, like, I love that example of your dad putting that on the calendar because that's most, most of us get into these seasons where we forget to do that. And it's why we, it's why most of us got into this in the first place is we want to make things we <laughs> yeah. like in the chaos of it all. And it's, I think there's also this layer where it gets harder and harder presently when it's like this overconsumption, overstimulization yeah. zone. And I fall trapped to this all the time where I accidentally start looking at other people's stuff, like just way too much. And it just, it like almost forces my brain into this way of thinking where I go, the things I make won't, it's just a really vicious cycle actually. And it's cool because we now have more various different types of role models, internet people that we can look up to than ever before. But then if you only ever look, it's really hard to pull away and then think, what is my voice? And that's where you end up with these widespread accusations of Casey Neistat copycats, where watching a video, it feels like a carbon copy without your own messages in it. And like, I can fall, I can fall prey to this all the time. If I go back and look at some, some old videos where I tried to get philosophical about ideals or values, I, I can watch some of those videos and I can know exactly which voices and which podcasters and which influencers I was paying. I can go, Oh yeah, that was my big, uh, that was my big insert name phase. And I'm, I'm just, <laughs> Gary, my Gary I'm just parroting <laughs> the thoughts. I'm just spitting them out in, in the way that I heard them, but that you can tell mm. that the thoughts aren't as lived in, aren't as experienced. And it's not a truth that I know deep enough to be real on. And that's where, that's where what sets someone like Casey apart miles and miles is what he shares as the main points of each of his videos are truths that you can tell he knows and has lived in. You don't have to want the same work and grind lifestyle. Gary Vee always says, oh, I hope someone starts the daily Zen. Like they're, they're about their chill lifestyle and they share those kinds of pieces of content. But you know, it's like some of these people that are at the top of their game that so many people are looking to, they get looked to, I think in a part because they're so clear for themselves what truth they care about. And they're just really in tapped with that. And if you're just consuming, 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 consuming your own ability to figure out what that is for yourself without going out and living experiences is massively hindered. And then it can just be so deflating because you're like, what value do I have to add to anything? Why would anybody ever care about the things I make? Not knowing that your perspective could be the one way to say it to that one person and they, and it's not there because you haven't made it. And it's, it's a shame. Like people want to, people, 
could connect with your perspective if you shared it and you're not, and you're robbing them. It's like, it's a shame because we just get in our own head, get in our own way. And man, I just, I wish that consumption cycle was, I wish there was a remedy for that because I'm so grateful for the consumption cycle because it's showed me what's possible. But then also if I don't turn that tap off, it's like a fire hose in my face. And that's why I just appreciate van life so much is it's, if I stay stagnant, I just feel it. And I'm like, whoa, I'm in this cycle of consuming. It's not helping me. I need to leave my normal to sort of short circuit my brain and get out of my habits and routines that are not healthy and start thinking for myself more clearly without (laughs) all the noise. Like there's just so much noise these days. Well, we'll touch on van life um, for sure in this interview because that's a huge topic for you and a big part of your career now, which is ironic because it's, it's because, yeah, it's, it's like, I feel like even van life for you could become a, a fire hose because there's, there's content in that world too. So it's like, it's kind of counterintuitive because like the whole point is to get away, but then therefore you got to make content about it. And so they're, you know, right. <laughs> yep. It's the, the creator dilemma. Yep. Yeah. But, um, I just want to touch on this, you know, I don't, we don't need to go into crazy detail, but, uh, you succeeded in something that was really cool. You did a, you did a run, um, people who might not be familiar with this, this was, uh, I guess two years ago now, but can you talk about the whole Casey Neistat thing? Cause I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I was at a place making videos on the channel where I was deep into studying story principles and I was looking at examples of all these great stories that were being told. And I was realizing these are not present in my own videos. Uh, And even the structure, where my life was heading, I was starting to kind of think about, I'm actually not taking the kind of risks that lead to the life that I want to live there's a disconnect here. For the last five years, I've told myself it's it's coming back to that va- values versus ideals. And I don't know if that's, that's kind of just language that I'm stumbling into here. I don't know if that's the best contrast there. It might fall apart at some point. But I had this ideal of being someone who ran regularly so I could stay active and healthy and, and enjoy that kind of life. I can just take my shoes and move myself and be healthy. I had this ideal. And year after year, I did the classic starting to try run and failing. And, and at that point I had to just ask myself, do I care about this or not? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do care actually. And it's like, okay, your current system of doing it is not working in the same way where I said in the past, you know, I care about making a film I like. And after several years of not doing it, I went, well, what do we need to change? And I can look back on my life in these cycles and rhythms where there's something I say I care about, after several years of not doing it, I have to acknowledge, okay, we got to change a rhythm here to, to actually be able to do it. And I was having that with running right at the time that I was having this inter conversation about the videos that I was putting onto the platform of YouTube. And I thought, what could be an interesting way to do something on the channel that could fail? Because some the adventure that could fail is the adventure that you want to know the outcome of if you care about the person's experience of it. And I was just thinking that through while I'm doing my first run of the year and I'm just winded and I'm on my phone and I like am on Twitter as I'm sitting on this park bench and I see this photo of Casey out on a run with someone else. It was Lance Armstrong of all people. And I see this photo and I'm like, Casey's on a run again. Like that guy, he just does it every day. That's so cool, man. I'd love to run with him someday. 
I was kind of just, I kind of sat there with that thought and was like, maybe I do a video series where I just put it out there into the world of like, I'll start getting into shape. And if our paths cross, I can run with this Casey guy because the whole reason of by, behind that for me was I was impacted by his work ethic and his storytelling and videos. And so I respected his work so much. And I thought he is the kind of person that going on a run for him with him would just be amazing. And to actually be able to keep up with him would be next level. And I don't want to do it in the way where I show up to his studio in New York and just like beg and, and try to do all the, that classic route. I was like, I would love to make videos good enough that he finds out about it, sends, sends the message. Hey, you want to go on a run? And I can actually say yes. Like that was the whole concept. And so I set this up in a series on YouTube, just dove into it head first. Turns out there's a conference coming up where I'm the hired video guy and he's the headlining speaker. Uh, that was kind of what helped the whole formulation of the idea. I saw a pathway that it could work. And sure enough, I get to the conference. I have no idea if it's going to happen. I get the phone call. Casey's down to run right now. I go put on the running shoes and it happens. And that for me was, I didn't end up even filming the run at all because for me, there's kind of this respect of someone that I looked up to where I didn't, yes, I did this whole series where I'm obviously the name of Casey in the title of the video helps the performance of the video in a sense. Um, but I think people would watch one video in this series and then watch several others because they're like, hey, is this is this goofball actually going to be able to do it? Yeah. Like, is this actually going to happen? <laughs> so that alone was just interesting. It's like, this is probably not going to work. Let's see. Let's just watch it fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that I think it had just that layer to it, but yeah. uh, it didn't. It didn't. It it managed to work out, which to me is fascinating. And I think if someone tried to do the same thing tomorrow, it wouldn't. But fortunate enough for me, the paths cross at the right moment, and then in a in a lot of uh, awesome circumstances later that evening, we ended up renting surfboards and having a whole other adventure on top of it. And now I now I feel fortunate enough to call him a friend, and that's. That's absurd to me thinking back to even four years ago, how much I would have loved to just be able to watch him do his work. That to me is so valuable. That's how I've learned everything I've learned so far is getting in the room with people I respect, watching them work. And if I can ask questions, that just takes the amount that I'll learn up a notch. And I can't tell you to, to like be in the studio, helping him shoot an internet video after watching 800 of his daily vlogs that to me was the culmination of all the lessons I had learned cemented home all in the, this nice bow of him, him, you know, being so gracious with his kind words of, of say love. Like I just, it was, uh, I was, I'm just fortunate that, that, that worked and it totally could not have. And that's the cool part to me. It, it would have been worth it. Even if I never met him to have tried a thing and to have it be its own standalone series, that was worth it. And, and, and I've, I'm in this place right now. I, I literally spent the last two years kind of not doing a new challenge. I guess I re we reconverted our van. We drove to Alaska. I had a kid. Those were all challenges in their own right that are life-changingly massive. You know, living for a year and a half full-time in a van is a big deal. But with my own work and my own growth, I've had to like sess out, hey, I haven't taken on one of those challenges that could fail in a minute. And that's like right when I'm in, I'm right in that right now. And we, and I'm trying to figure out what that next one's going to be. And this is the cycle of my life where I take on a challenge. I do it, experience the rewards of doing something hard that could have failed 
Some of them have failed. Some of them went better than I could have expected. And then there's always that like, it's like the wave that goes up and down. There's always the low point beneath. And when I find myself there and I acknowledge, here's where I am. And I say that with my words, then suddenly I start to realize, oh, we can use a toolkit to get out of here. And that toolkit for me has always been, what is hard? (laughs) What is going to be interesting? What am I curious about? What would be challenging? And if I start to do those again, some of the ingredients that make stories interesting, if I start to include that in my life rhythm, that's where I end up finding in myself in this new chapter that I couldn't have pictured beforehand. And hopefully there's growth that comes from it. And that cycle is, uh, I wish that it felt smoother than the experience of it is. <laughs> it's not as smooth when you're experiencing it. You, you're going you're at the low points. You're like, I hate my work. I hate my life. I'm not doing anything interesting. This is boring. <laughs> nobody nobody appreciates my, my stuff that I'm pouring my heart into. This is all a waste of time. Like that's the low points. Mm-hmm. But then the, the mountaintops are, the mountaintops where you experience them with other people that mean something to you are really cool. Yeah. And that to me is, that's, getting to sit down with a group of friends and watch the video that you guys made with the team, with that, that collective effort, that to me Mm -hmm. is so special. And I want to keep experiencing that over and over and over again. Absolutely. That's kind of one of the, I I don't know if you can relate, but when I was really young, I'm talking like, you know, a boy, when I would shoot videos with my friends, my parents camcorder, just sitting on the couch and watching the dumb sketches that we would make. That was so fulfilling. And, I think the joy that you have in that moment is almost better than, you know, getting a hundred thousand views on a video now. <laughs> yeah. It's all where you're the, the goalposts always shift. And that's not to say, that's not to say you should be just okay. Because I mean, yeah. we get into this dance with numbers where, where we feel like we have to say the numbers don't matter to keep our artistic integrity. But the problem with numbers is it, is the reason why we spend so much time on the videos is because the audience that views them and what, what it means to the audience to me is probably more important than the quantity of view count. So there's a layer happening there, but like I would never in my life sit down for a month to edit a video, bashing my head against the wall. If an apocalypse happened, you know, if the world ends tomorrow and me and my van are in the north of Canada and we're like, whoa, we made it and I have a camera and I've got solar power to charge it and I've got my computer to edit the videos, you better believe I will film things just because like, hey, I made it through the apocalypse, but I'm not going to stress about how the retelling of my stories will be experienced if they aren't experienced by people. I just won't care. But the reality is we pour ourselves into internet videos and toil over the little details because they will be viewed. Like we don't care. Like I don't spend near enough energy over trying to bring a sense of clarity to projects that I only share with my family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's a whole context there that my family understands. We've got the background on me. They know me. They already, you know, thankfully they like me. So I don't have to like win them over and get them to buy into what the story is. They'll just be in. It's the classic. My mom will watch anything I make. My dad will watch anything I make. So I don't have to stress about the retelling. But then when we move over to metrics, it's like, okay, you spend all this time on a video, you click upload, it gets seen by amount of people. And yes, it's a constant process of not placing value your own value, like 
You don't want to place your own identity value on, on a metric because that is just a recipe for failure. But in some point in the equation for me, it always comes back to it is exciting when a group of people enjoyed it and it grows past your, your average reach. And it doesn't matter what the average is, whatever the average is, if it does lower than the average, that sometimes communicates to you something that's pretty important of, hey, maybe this isn't connecting with people in the way you thought. And that that's worth of asking a question, should I do more of that? And you can't, you can't bank or guarantee something to do above whatever your average is. But there is something very rewarding about seeing numbers reflect what you cared about in it. That's like a really fun process. When I did the run with Nystat series, that was a really fun process to ask myself, how could I make videos that are interesting and culturally relevant? Where if someone sees that title, they might know what it is without knowing me. That was the question. And the response was, yes, in the metric of hundreds of thousands of views, a metric that I don't experience on my average. And, th- and that's that's exciting. It tells me, hey, as a piece of internet culture, internet content, this worked in that sense. And that doesn't mean my my personal identity has to be made or broken over that concept. But this is just something that I'm always kind of trying to suss out. And this is the conversations that me and you have had over text. It's like, it's one thing to know what, what benchmark do I need to hit for myself? Benchmark's the wrong word. What feeling do I need to have in this video for me to be happy with it in the finished work? What, what is that for me? And then what is success on the platform of YouTube for me? And how do those, can, how can those coexist where you can still be massively proud of a project that even tanks on your channel? Can that coexist and still teach you something about what you make next? Because the way you put a video out there into the world these days really, really matters. And it can still be a really, really, really good video and not be put out there under the platform of YouTube well. Mm. And that doesn't mean you're bad. No, it doesn't. It's just YouTube is, uh, as I've talked to other freelance filmmakers and stuff about YouTube on my journey, it's a genre. It's its own thing. You kind of have to, you can kind of do whatever you want on the in between it, but your intro and outro need to be a certain way. The way you present it probably needs to be a little, you know, analytically thoughtful and then your thumbnail and title, you know? So I don't know if you're a filmmaker, you can just make a project and sell it to Netflix and, uh, and it's its own thing. So there's other avenues for people who want to make stuff, but if we're going to be on YouTube, you got to kind of play the game a little bit, but then you've got the exception. You've got the the lightning in the bottle people like McKinnon and Casey, but even them, they're they're staying in their lane. They're you know Casey's he just started his vlog up again, and it's it's like nothing happened. He stopped for a year and a half, and he's been making content every day again, and it's like just back to normal. And you know he's getting over two million views on those videos. Um, and people would think, oh, it's because the the more edgy titles that he's doing. But it's like, it's yes and no. It's it's the edgy, interesting title mixed with the Casey brand. That title, that thumbnail does nothing without the Casey brand. Because like you know what you're getting 
at this point, when you click on a Casey video, you just know, and it communicates to other people on the platform that they've never heard of the guy before, because those people are out there. <laughs> you know, there's people on YouTube every day that have never oh, heard yeah, of the, totally. the, the Casey I talked to and, I talked to lots of people who don't know who he is. But when they see the social proof of the view count, it's the social proof of the view count that helps enable why that title worked. And we can't just look at that and go, why isn't that working for me? It's because you haven't you haven't earned the trust with an audience that is willing to hear from you in every video, regardless of what it is. Like he could upload like a white thumbnail, zero title, and that I could almost guarantee that would still hit a million million views easily in the first 48 <laughs> hours. It just would happen. Yeah, totally. And that's that's kind of the goal for anybody is to have an audience who is attached to you as a person and and therefore, no matter what you make, it, it's seen. I mean, Chris Nolan, the director, filmmaker, like... I know every movie he makes. I'm Chris who? Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. I don't I watch movies, Dave. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I still haven't seen Tenet yet, but you know, like pretty much any movie that he makes, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm gonna love it. Same for um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Shaun of the Dead guy. I freaking love his stuff. Um, Edgar Wright. Any movie that he makes, I think, is hilarious and amazing. Um, but. On YouTube, it's easy to fall into like people are finding you through other sources. If you talk about a piece of gear, especially um, you're showing up in search results and people are just watching it because they want the information and then they just duck out. So, you know, how has that been for you changing your audience? Because uh, you did have some gear reviews in the past. You, you probably built a following of people who were there for that. I know I discovered you with the GH5 and a lot of other people did because you were one of the early shooters on YouTube. Actually, I think maybe even the first YouTuber with a GH5. I don't actually know the story there, how you got a hold of it first, but. Yeah, first claim. My, that's my claim to fame. First vlog with the GH5. Woo! First, <laughs> yeah. what's important to me though is first adventure film too. Like that's that's kind of the, yes. the, the layer well, I care It was fabulous. About. Tell me how you've continued to find your your own voice and you've been able and how you've been able to navigate basically shifting audiences who maybe came for gear or came for the Casey run or came for van life. Right. You know, how how have you been able to manage that? Because you've basically done like three shifts since I've known you. <laughs> Again, it comes back to you as an artist, you don't really give a crap. Like you're just going to do what interests you. Yeah. Um, and I respect that, but yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of layers there for, for how we think about what we want to do moving forward. And then also reflecting on what we've done in the past. And if the goal is growth and becoming a household name, it is very, very helpful to give people the tools to remember you. And if we try to communicate all the aspects of who we are with someone through the internet, that is the surefire fire way to make yourself forgettable. Uh, you know, if you say skateboard New York City, Casey Neistat comes to mind for very good reason. You know, there's these identifi identifiable ways that we could immediately put someone out there and say what it is. If I say purple background, that in our tech space already starts like your a name pops to your head. And then if I throw camera gear on top of that, then it's like... Right. Okay. There's a brand there associated with that. And I've been thinking over the years, what are those layers going to be for me? Because you can make a series of choices to make yourself more rememberable and how you put yourself out there. I would argue that's what, that's what an online brand for, 
for a person ends up becoming is the outward and inner perceptions of this is how I've put myself out there and this is how that's perceived as who you are. And so I realize I'm the guy who likes a million and one things. And if I always am putting all of those out there all of the time, that's a recipe to just blend in <laughs> and not end up being remembered. You know, it's the classic when you're at a conference and someone's introducing what they do, we remember the ones who are short, concise, and it's clear. It's not all of the things they do, but I can't remember one introduction for the life of me that I've met at a conference that was that long rambling three to five minutes, whatever. And if I do remember it, my brain is deciding there's one key component about this person. And that is the guy from Boise who does graphic design. Like my brain will just decide for them if they won't decide for themselves. And so that's where I forget that when people encounter my work online, they're making those same realizations. And so as someone who, who puts things into the world, do I decide if something's worth doing or not based on how previous people have perceived what I do? I probably place less value on that. And that is not a great way to grow a big channel, just outright. That is the wrong way to approach YouTube. If like, if I want to grow this channel big, I have to double down on tech stuff. I have to double down on van only stuff. And I've kind of just decided I want YouTube to be something I like doing as a whole. There'll be times I don't like it. And to achieve that for me, it has to stay a sandbox. I have to be okay with making a video about the birth of my daughter and that being enough. I have to be fine with that. It doesn't have to fit the niche. It doesn't have to fit whatever. And I hear from so many people that they go, I don't feel the freedom to make things I like anymore because I'm trapped. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that sentence is the most confusing thing to me because I go, it is YouTube. It's yours. You're doing <laughs> it for you. yourself. Um, yeah. What? Why? Like, why build the audience if you can't show the audience what you care about most in the first place? And that is a compromise that if I am making currently, I will try whatever I can to not keep making it in the future. Because that just... So I don't know if that necessarily answers the questions of the different focuses that have shifted for me over the years. I'm hoping there's a consistent brand beneath, beneath that of the way that Levi approaches things. But I know as a whole that that Levi brand isn't strong enough for someone to have a go-to sentence about what I am in each one of those little phases. So I get that that limits the potential for growth. It's just what it is. Uh, is there a spaceship go taking off or something? Or <laughs> Yeah, where did, what is that sound? Um, okay, that sound is off now. Yeah, apologies for the jet engine sounds, Dave. This is what happens when you're in the struggles of the glamour that you see on Instagram with van life is sometimes not reality because yeah. the it is amazing to wake up next to a lake and need to edit. But then the second you got to upload that thing uh -huh. and you don't have cell service, it is such a struggle to, there's certainly hiccups to the lifestyle when you're basing your life out of a van <laughs> and sound is one of them. Totally fine, oh. dude. Oh, now there's a saw going off. It's fine, We're good, man. I, I think we will keep on trucking. The show will go on. Yeah, people, if if you're listening and you hear some noise, um, I'll do my best to to fix it and post. But you know, <laughs> Levi's in the middle of a jungle right now, so just be thankful. Oh, I wish this was a jungle. This is not the jungle. But if you uh, 
just be grateful it's not a crying baby because we could have that instead. <laughs> totally fine. My wife and daughter are graciously lending us the van for this uh, extended conversation. So that's awesome. So tell me, I mean, you just kind of mentioned van life. Um, I don't really know anything about it. I've never lived the van life. Uh, I watched your journey uh, converting the van into a home, which was an incredible series. I highly recommend anybody who's interested, who hasn't seen it, to watch it. We'll link all of your stuff in the show notes, including your films as well uh, that you've talked about Untethered. Um, you had some incredible um, slack, uh, slack line films that are just phenomenal. Um, but you, you did a whole Thanks, kind Dave. of... Oh, dude, I love it. I love your stuff. I've told you for years, you're an amazing filmmaker and I love it. Um, but yeah, the, the van conversion vlog and and i guess the decision that you guys made to turn that into your home was pretty amazing and i assume it wasn't just out of the blue i know that you guys probably have been talking about it for years but now you're you're actually embracing it and living it what has that journey been like actually moving your family into a van (laughs) yeah we could uh we could hang out on this topic for three hours plus and so i'll trying to not uh, drag on here. Um, it's been really special for me to get back into the van with my brand new daughter and get out on the road with my wife. That for me, what has been a dream for, for a very, very, like we're talking, what do you guys say in the States? When I say sixth grade, what, what grade is that for you guys? Do you say sixth sixth, grade or sixth grade? Once you get into ninth, that's freshman, but yeah. Right. Yeah. So back when I was like, when I was a kid, I, you know, I would see these, these camper vans go down the road. And I, I just thought this is the dream to, to have an acoustic guitar, go camping, have a wonderful family. That was, that was a very early idea for me. And practically speaking, the necessity of having a place to stay with some of the videos I make, I ran into that right away in high school where I would pay myself. Well, I'm not paying myself, but I would cover the expenses to go film bike events on my own dime to try grind it out as a outdoor filmmaker. And I can't afford to stay in the hotels that the media guys are staying in. So, you know, I would pop down the back of the back seat of the car and I'd sleep in the car. And eventually that got upgraded to a little pickup truck, a little Ford Ranger, and I'd sleep in the back of the Ford Ranger. And I would look at these vans that people had, these, you know, GMC safaris or uh, Astro vans. And I'd go that is the ticket because you can sleep inside of it and there's room. (laughs) You can lie down and seeing other people living out of vehicles or traveling out of vehicles. For me, it was always, what is it for? And it was always to do something with it. So for me, there was never this, Hey, I would really love to just spend time in a vehicle because that's the optimal way to live. It kind of became this necessity where some of the things I enjoy doing to afford to be able to do them, doing them out of a vehicle is the better way. I'll pause for the thought here for a sec. Oh, there we go. Um, so that, that became, it, it started as a necessity for that. And once I tasted some of my friends who had more of these proper setups in vans that were, you know, it's, it's the minivan, but it's got a bed in it. Once I saw what that was like, my dad and I had done surf trips like that growing up. I knew I wanted that version for me. And when I made that transition to go full in on filmmaking for a season, I didn't know if I would go full in on filmmaking forever, 
but I knew I wanted to try. And in order to make that work in the city, I thought, whoa, it's way better to do this out of a van. And as hard as it is to cough up the money to buy a high roof cargo van at the time, I, I, <laughs> I talked to one of the clients I was editing for, I was like, can we go on retainer? And can you pay me up front for work that I haven't done yet? So that way I can, <laughs> so that way you have the privilege of being, I basically talked them into paying me up front for work. I hadn't uh, fully done. I, it was like my first retainer pay advance client where I set up an account with them and they paid me in advance for editing work. And then I would slowly like retract from their account as I edited over time and then would bill again. Uh, and that was what allowed me to buy the van that I'm still in now five years later. Uh, but it, <laughs> it's gone through some, it started super, super basic because I spent all the money on the van and none on the conversion, which I learned pretty quickly. Batteries are expensive. Insulation's expensive. All these things that actually make it more functional cost a lot. And, and we just did the bare bones, take apart wood pallets kind of build. And that video, I filmed that. I filmed me tearing apart the inside of this van and building a pallet interior. Those videos were the first videos in ages. The, the initial tastes I had of like online uh, views or whatever was always biking videos on a specific uh, website called pinkbike.com. And they can select a video of the day that gets featured. And lots of mountain bikers logged in every day to see those videos. So that was the first tastes I got of 20 to 40,000 views. And then over on YouTube, it was only ever like 500 or those kinds of things. It was never large numbers. And as I was slowly grinding it out on YouTube, I uploaded these videos of me working on the van, kind of not thinking much of it. And I mean, if you, if you sort by most viewed on my channel right now, those videos are almost five years old. And that is still in my top 10 most viewed videos is me just pulling apart the flooring in my van. <laughs> 800,000 views. Oh my gosh. In, and I was just like, whoa, there is a moment happening here yeah. that there's some traction happening outside of what I have control of. This is culturally interesting to a group of people that is larger than my current audience. And that is interesting. And here's Dave, where I'm the worst YouTuber. I proceeded to not make another video about van stuff for months. <laughs> I just, I don't know why exactly, but I just didn't. And, mm -hmm. and I should have, and those videos did well, but I just proceeded to kind of go off and continue to do what I was doing and how this latest van build kind of series and thing came around is one, my wife and I do these little retreats where we just go off for a weekend and try to ask ourselves do we like the direction we're going in life right now? And do we want to change it? And that we try to like pull away from our daily routine to have those conversations. Otherwise I'll just forget to have them because I'll just get so focused in on the current trajectory. And that might not even be the one that's most helpful, but I'll just be dead set on continuing it. So we pull back and we have conversations like, Hey, should we continue? Like, should I delete the YouTube channel? You know, we have permission to bring those things up always will to bring those up like in your normal rhythm. Sometimes it would take like a big stressful situation to make that conversation happen. But we try to make the space for it before it gets to that big stressful situation. And sometimes that doesn't always happen early enough. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> true. But we had a conversation at some point where Janelle, we, we got married after I had already lived in the van for a period. And the joke always was, Oh, you guys moving into the van. And that was never, that was never something that I would force 
on Janelle as like, this is what we should do with our life. I knew if Janelle ever arrived at a place where she wanted to spend months living out of a van on end, she would have to actually want to do it. And that was really tough for me to not overshare how excited I was about the potential idea of traveling with a family in a van in the future and like overwhelm her with with my dream. But I knew if this was going to be a thing we did together, she had to see value in it and want it. And after one of our little retreats, she kind of said, you know, it'd be really cool if we converted the van and, and did a long, big trip. Wow. And I had to, I had to like hold back my excitement and com- <laughs> the, the floodgates almost just opened up all in one moment of, okay, can we have a kid? Can we do this? I had to hold it back a little bit. I'm kind of the dreamer type. And so I love just dreaming of the future and she is more realistic where she goes, okay, what does it actually take to make that happen? And sometimes I'll dream about things just to dream about them. And sometimes I'll dream about them because I want them to happen actually. And there's a difference there. And I forget to sometimes uh, clarify. So we made that call of, Hey, this would be worthwhile for us to invest time and money into getting the van ready to a state where if we wanted to leave our basement suite, for months on an end, we could, you know, and that means we need things like water. We need things like a toilet. There's certain things that you kind of need. And we started to assess that for ourselves and we went, okay, let's do that. And of course I just managed to make everything about my hobbies, which my hobbies are making videos. And I thought, okay, if we convert this van, we, we should definitely do videos about it again, because judging from my past experience, those did well on the platform. So hope, Like maybe if I do all these videos, some of them will have YouTube success and that would be beneficial when I want to drop a short film. There's more people around who might care about it because I think the people that encounter the van content that I put out there, not all of them click the subscribe. And I think the ones who do notice that it's filmed in a slightly different way and go, hey, what's this guy about? And they click through on the channel. They see some of the short films and they go, yeah, I'm interested in a filmmaker who travels in a van. That's interesting. And if making van content finds me some of those people who are eventually going to stick around to watch the things I care about more, that's pretty cool. That's, that's a convenient setup. And for better or for worse, when I commit to something, I just accidentally go all in and I ended up, (laughs) I ended up continuing to make client videos to pay for everything, continue to make videos on the YouTube channel and tackle the building of a van on a deadline so we could so we could travel to Alaska and make videos about the build and upload those all on my own. And that ended up being, I learned from that, that I shouldn't do that again because it was just like, I overstretched myself big time. Um, uh, but it was, it was cool. And the, the funny thing is, is none of the van videos actually the, in the build series themselves, the first video we uploaded, did great. And then every other one, it felt like did channel average, which is fine. But I was hoping, you know, there's that little, that little success metric deep down where it's like, I'm making 30 videos in the hope that a few of them pop off. So more audience finds me. And when I make that is, I would be lying if I didn't say that was a goal. Um, you know, I would have converted the van either way, but I don't know if I would have spent as much time on the videos. But the videos are (laughs) awesome, dude. I've, they're going to, the th- I, I understand where you're coming from, but 
I love the long term thing of like in 10, right. 15 years, you know, your daughter can watch these films. Right. They're amazing. Um, it's a piece for you to, to cherish personally, too, because it is a personal journey that you guys went on. And the fact that you documented it so well is going to be something your family is going to cherish forever. So, but, you know, Man, I, if I had done this, though, like if I had taken on this series back when I did the first videos and had actually capitalized then, I mean, playing the what if scenarios is helpful to no one. But it is funny to me that I am not good at catching on to trends fast enough. <laughs> so I'm, I like, even in the filmmaker space, I miss all the trends. I missed, I missed the B-roll trend. I missed, you know, I, I just, and <laughs> what okay. I, to put it all into a nice little bow, I did get that little dopamine hit on YouTube when I did a snow camping trip in the van and I made a whole video about it. And I had seen someone else do a snow camping trip in their van and seeing that title and thumbnail interested me so much. And I was about to go snowboarding the next week. And I thought, if I make my own version of that, this will probably do well. And I don't normally have that thought. I don't have the confidence to know when things will do well on YouTube. Uh, and putting up that video with the hopes, hey, I think this will do well. And then now having that be the most video, most viewed video by and afar on the channel is kind of encouraging. It's like, <laughs> in some sense, I did end up getting the yeah. a little bit of traction on the platform that I had hoped for. And judging by that, I might not make another snow video for another five years if I follow my current model of accidentally not repeating what's working. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I have a habit of doing that. Well, there's value in uh, in terms of YouTube growth and and having those viral moments. You can't. You really can't ever plan for something to go viral. But what you can do is, is is the work to allow it to happen. And by remaining consistent and by having those videos that performed, you said on average, allowed the platform to recognize that you're an active, you know, you're an active user. You're putting stuff out. And even though you might only be performing on average, you know, it's still more views than you would have had if you didn't post it. It's still more engagement than you would have had if you didn't do anything at all. So, um, I know for me with my success on YouTube, it was all about, you know, when I, when I met you for the first time, we were posting two videos a week, every single week on Kinotika, just reviewing gear. And I think on average, we were getting like a couple hundred views. Sometimes we'd get like 2000 views, but we did that for like months. And then we were the first channel to post anything on the black magic camera and it got like a hundred thousand views in a day, which for us was huge. And, and I all the other people with cameras that were YouTubers at, at NAB were like, we missed the moment here. Dave capitalized. We got to make videos. <laughs> exactly. But that Everyone was, watched that. that was an example of like, for me, it was a real true example of like, okay, if you just put in the time and you remain consistent, the platform will promote your content there was another channel actually i think rhino sliders they posted a video before us but because we were consistent we were engaged in our audience in our community the platform pushed it and so the same is true for you with with the snow piece you were you were very consistent and you were able to build a foundation of of users that watch it so youtube's already decided like okay this group of people are interested in this content and then when everybody that is a fan of yours, watch that video. It told YouTube like, holy crap, when we show this video to somebody, they click it and they watch it. So we're going to put it out to more people. And then I'm sure you had some blogs share it as well. I don't know how it 
kind of blew up, but sometimes that can help as well. Having outside sources share it. But, um, was there anything in particular that, that kind of triggered the virality of that or was it just it's YouTube? All, it's all suggested. Yeah. So wow, that's awesome. Instead of being no, no, what you sometimes find this on the platform where you encounter a video that you end up clicking on because it's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. And the comments on the video that are sometimes hilarious of, I bet you didn't search for this video, but here you are. <laughs> yeah. Like and, the Marquez videos that show up that he posted like 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of, I think this is a Daryl Eves thing. I've never done any of his programs, but I think he talks about optimizing for humans. Yeah. And I would say that that's an instance where I optimized for humans. I don't think anybody was specifically typing into the search bar winter van life, but if someone has an audience overlap of being interested in nomadic DIY van lifey travel stuff and YouTube showed it to them, they clicked and they watched a massive percentage of the video. And it's fun for me because one thing I learned, I'm really big on education. That's kind of, that's my business model. I, I run a YouTube channel so people can find me. And then I hope that they're around when I release things that I care about, but then I also want to help them. And I help them because it's really fun. It's such an, it's such an, a, a rush to hear back from people. This helped me. Thank you. I love that affirmation cycle. That means that I could run off that for weeks on end, but then doing in-person education or providing more value than I could possibly provide in a single YouTube video with people in person, I thrive off that. And the people who show up at the in-person experiences that I put out there, all of them find me on YouTube. And what I always find interesting is that without fail, almost all of those people aren't commenters. Yet here are people who travel across from Sweden to Canada to go sailing with me, you know, from Florida to Canada, they're investing more money than I would ever imagine on flights alone, let alone paying me to help organize this trip, which is such, I do not like, I value that. I, I respect that so much and I don't understand it, but people do make those decisions with their own money to come spend time with me on an adventure and those people without fail are never the commenters. And that just like, that drives home to me that there's so much happening under the surface that we can't see when we're making our, our videos, but there can be meaningful change that you're imparting into someone's life where they say, Hey, I'm actually not an adventure filmmaker. I don't even know how I first found your channel. Maybe it was a van video. Maybe it was something else. I'm actually about to retire and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I got this camera and I'm thinking, what would it be like to document the life of a dad who's trying to figure out what it's like to be an empty nester for the first time retired? That is, that is a life experience I know nothing about. I'm not there yet. I don't know. I don't even have a retirement fund yet. You know, I, I'm not working that corporate job where I'm going to retire on a pension. And so I don't know his life experience but there's people out there who would so value to hear from him. And when I hear from that guy that he's willing to come to one of my workshops, hang out, try to investigate what does it mean to put together better pieces of story for people to experience, and he's trying to improve, I want nothing more than him to just go all in on story because I want his message to get out there. 
I want people to find it. I want people to hear from him because his voice is offering a perspective that I don't have and I think should be heard. And man, that just gives me such a kick. And I got to remind myself that when I accidentally start looking at metrics too much, or maybe I feel so isolated on the platform of YouTube, not having a community that's local, it's so easy to just feel it's ironic because a lot of YouTubers end up being introverts. And when we sometimes go to these conferences, I mean, Dave's an extrovert, right, Dave? Don't uh, tell yeah. me you're an introvert, Dave. <laughs> of course. Yeah. 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 So when Dave and I are at these, at these get togethers with people, we end up sometimes being the more intense, loud, energetic ones. <laughs> and I love just seeing other more introverted personality types be in the larger numbered groups because you know, it, it can be uncomfortable sometimes to suddenly be in a group of massive numbers. I thrive off that. And so we're getting all energized. We're like, finally, we're out of the cave and we get to see people. <laughs> and the introverts are like, get me back to the cave. This is a little, this is a little bit much. I just need like two yeah. people right now. And so th- I just, I go through these phases with the creator life of, of really running out of fuel when it's just creating videos over and over and over for the platform. And that's where, I mean, I just drove down to California in February before pre-COVID and that drive just for, I didn't try to do collaborations. I didn't try to do anything specific business-wise. I just wanted to see other makers. And man, that trip was so life-giving for me. And I think people got to learn from themselves. If I'm not enjoying the cycle here, hey, what, what could I implement that I would enjoy uh, because, because if, if you end up driving yourself into the ground for someone else's goal of success, that is a, that is a lesson that's valuable to learn, but it's also a shame because man, we got to listen to what actually gives us life. And I guess that's all to say that I get a big kick out of helping people in person, helping them online is fun too, but in person is, man, that's so much fun. Totally. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. And I think this uh, pandemic is showing a lot of people who would call themselves introverts that they're not actually fully introvert. Like, it's important to be around people. And uh, I think we're all really feeling that now. I mean, all the events that we normally go to where we get to see each other have, have been canceled, at least for another year, um, probably. So it's really unfortunate. But you know, I miss the introverts, man. I miss, I miss making them uncomfortable with hugs and seeing them and <laughs> totally and accidentally being way too excited to see them and then having to dial. I miss that. And, uh, <laughs> well, maybe I would we can, like to think they miss it too, but we'll, I'll have to we leave can, them to answer. We can remedy that with some questions that we posted. Uh, I posted a Twitter, uh, Let's what do, do you call it? it? I posted a tweet and some people tweeted <laughs> me. I posted a Twitter. Um, a Twitter status update through a community tab on a Facebook post. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, a couple of you guys who follow me on Twitter at Dave Mays, plug, 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 uh, follow Levi at the Levi Allen. Uh, and by the way, when I change my name. That's a fun way to say that. I always say it as the Levi Allen, but the Levi Allen sounds the, official. The, the official. Levi Allen, just like <laughs> just like a celebrity. Um, at that modern dude asks, how do you navigate the YouTube world between gear and storytelling and how gear videos, in quotes, can possibly bring a negative experience to people in regards to GAS, which stands for gear acquisition syndrome? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, I fail at my own metrics at this. Um, when I started, I already felt that the 
space on YouTube already had a lot of really solid gear content. And my initial goal out of the gate was I would love if someone encountered my stuff to think of me as a storyteller guy. And I fail at that when I fall into a trap of just thinking, if I post about a new camera that's interesting, that will be free, free interaction. And so I do, for instance, I just uploaded a video that's got a new camera name in the title. And I'm not convinced on my channel that new camera tech or those things do well. Otherwise, I might get addicted to that rush where it's, hey, the new camera tech stuff does well on the channel, so I should keep doing it. So it kind of makes the decision for me where I have to acknowledge what people have valued out of me more is when I'm doing what I appreciate doing more anyways. And that is the feedback that I love the most is, whoa, this is good storytelling. Awesome. That's what I care about. So that doesn't necessarily answer the question of the balance, but uh, to answer it, I am deliberately not making gear videos a lot of the time that would be straightforward to make because if you have made a gear video in the past, there's a chance that there's another dozen companies that would be willing to send you another thing. And some of it is relevant because I try to help people just getting into creating. I try to help them. So some of it, for instance, you know, a a new entry-level camera with a flip screen, I will consider making a video about that if I think it's a good recommendation, but I can't possibly keep up with all that style of camera. And so when, when will I make videos like that? And sometimes in different seasons, there's more videos that, that fit that gear level. But if I do too many videos in a row, if you look at my upload history and scan over the thumbnails and in a section of 10 videos, if you see more than one thumbnail in there about gear, I see that as a problem. So that's how I'm dealing with gear acquisition syndrome. And I'm hoping that my actions can continue to align. Gear is not bad. It's honestly an aspect of this hobby that I love a lot because I love tech. But I was someone who was stuck in the gear cycle and it was a trap. It's a tool. And if we don't use the tool to do what the tool's for, why? <laughs> <laughs> I made a song about it. It's called Gear Guy. You should watch it. Um... <laughs> yeah, I think I've, I definitely see, I've definitely seen that on TikTok. So. <laughs> No, I think uh, that's a great answer. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's different for me. I see for what I'm doing with the gear reviews, I, I try to always point to top gear. That's always my kind of metric of like, okay, yes, I'm talking about specs. Yes, I'm talking about cameras, but is it just plain old entertaining? And I think there is a niche on YouTube of gear reviewers like Potato Jet, like Mattia Poya, who are just they're talking about gear that's relevant, but it's also just plain old entertaining. Kai W, another great example. Like I just enjoy watching that content because it's entertaining to me. I like the information. Uh, Top Gear was like that. I I will never buy any of those cards that they talk about, but the the personalities behind those those shows were so entertaining, and the information for me as as a in, person interested in cars, uh, it was interesting. But I'm not gonna buy it, you know. However, there's this play of like the YouTubers do want people to buy 
the products using their affiliate link because it is part of our our income. So, uh, you know, there is that aspect. Dave, like, you, you just reminded me, I got to add the affiliate link to the video I just uploaded about a new camera. I'm so bad at YouTube, man. Oh, it's not even funny. Add the affiliate link, my friend. Do it. <laughs> I could paste yours in there if you want me to. I haven't even pasted my own. So clearly, I don't, clearly I'm forgetful here. Jeez. That's this is a good reminder. Well, this is a this is another uh, a good question here uh, from at Elden E Yoder. Uh, excuse me if I mispronounce that, but he says, "Has being a new dad, congrats by the way, affected the way you look at filmmaking and storytelling?" Yes, hundred uh, percent. There's a layer about how I think. For some reason, I get motivated by what legacy means and how how I want to use the short brevity of life that will end up happening, the speck of dust through the wind experience on this spinning rock through space. And becoming a father is really focusing for those decisions in a massive way with with also bringing a lot of joy into the whole experience of there is newfound joy that wasn't available to me before. And, and just, man, that's a, it's a really... I've joked with some of my friends here that it feels like I finally left the tutorial mode of, of a video game. <laughs> you know, I used to play RuneScape back when I was a teenager. And I always remembered anytime I knew, created a new account, I had to go through the little tutorial and the game didn't start till you left the tutorial. And in some ways it really does feel like that for, for life, but then also for, for story, I do think there's transcendent truths about that journey of becoming a dad relationship, family relationship, that whole, those truths and belonging values, all of those things in order to interact with those well as a storyteller, I think you in some senses have to know them. It is challenging to do authentic story about things that you don't know. And I love that by having a kid, it's opening up this whole deeper realm of story that to me has never been accessible because I didn't know it. And it's easy for a parent who's got teenagers who now are in college to be like, oh, you just wait. You don't know what you're in for. It's easy to say sentences like that to people. But the truth is, even entering the world of being a dad has already unlocked a different way of thinking about things that I'm just pumped about. I couldn't agree more. I entered that as well. And uh, our good friend Josh Yo just had a baby as well. Um Jevin Dovey as well. A lot of, a lot of us new dads Dad over tube. here. <laughs> yeah. Dad life. Um, let's see. Uh, Dan King asks, you've recently opened up membership on your YouTube channel. What has the experience been like inviting others into the role supporters and cheerleaders into the role of supporters and cheerleaders? Do you find you having extra weight on your shoulders now to produce because you have them invested? <laughs> Interesting question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, that's why I was so hesitant to build Patreon type things in the past. Yeah. And I went years without making one until finally there's some people that were just so loud on my channel being, <laughs> they were basically begging me to open it because they wanted to just support. And that was tough for me because it's that dynamic of, I would like to add value that's unique to those people. And they were telling me, we're just happy enough to support anyways. And 
I opened the Patreon to solve that problem initially and I gave them stickers and whatever, but I kind of said, hey, look, you're not going to get something that special here. So if you want that, <laughs> please don't support here for those reasons. And I always wished that I had membership available on my channel. It wasn't turned on yet because I think the whole, I don't like telling people to go somewhere else. I don't like saying, hey, you have to go here to get that. That's not a great user experience. As someone who consumes content on YouTube, I've never gone and been a Patreon because that just felt like a weird series of events and I just never did it. And it feels weird to ask other people to do something that I personally haven't done. But with memberships, I became a member on YouTube for some channels kind of effortlessly. And I was like, man, I really hope that that opens up for my channel. One, because just shooting quick iPhone videos and uploading for member only is a straight, more straightforward process. There's less barriers to entry. And two, it's just built right into the platform. So I don't feel this massive pressure to create new stuff for the members because of how I communicate about what it is. Um, but the pressure is certainly much less than I felt on Patreon. I still felt bad that on Patreon, I wasn't giving them more where YouTube membership, even the word membership, it kind of just sounds more like what it actually is of, Hey, we're just super fans that want to see you make more. Please do. And if you upload us special stuff and we get the behind the scenes look of videos that don't belong in the feed, that's what I've been doing so far. We've had it open for two months and it has been so simple for me to just bust out the iPhone, talk to it for eight minutes, hit upload, set it as member only. And some people get value out of that. Nice. And that's great. So I, I've been appreciating membership on YouTube quite a bit. Very interesting. Maybe I should try that. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at 2 East 8th asks, do you plan on doing another Adventure Film Academy sailing workshop? Oh, yes. Oh, we yeah. we had four on the calendar this year. Uh, and it, then... COVID, <laughs> COVID, uh, COVID did what it does. And yeah. the, the hard part about that for me is that I've been on this four or five year journey of building out a system to try teach solo adventure filmmaking. I've gone through the steps of teaching it in person, doing live sessions, speaking it at conferences, doing it at these small intensive workshops. And we've been, basically I want it to be good stuff. And that's what I, I teach at these small adventure workshops where four people will come sailing with me for five days and we do life together and we just do all things storytelling. That process I've been trying to capture into a video course for ages but that's a lot more complicated than just standing behind a background and just talking. There's, there's a layer that happens in person that's so special that you can communicate some really unique things that I think if I approach the producing of the course with a certain headspace, the video version of that course would be really, really valuable if done right. And this was the year we were going to film it and we couldn't because the course, the trips were canceled and I've just had to accept that and acknowledge that will come next year. It's okay. So yes, more in-person stuff will happen. And for all of those that, that just can't afford to travel across the world to go sailing, I get it. And uh, we're trying to make you online resources. Adventure Film Academy. It's not going anywhere, man. It's my, it's my yeah. biggest, uh, I love it. I love everybody, it so much. Yeah. Everybody go check out the adventure. Oh, what is it? Sorry. Adventurefilmacademy.com uh, to learn more. Yeah, if it's not rememberable, that's a problem. <laughs> but, no, it, it is. Like, it, I just, 
I just didn't know it. Adventure Film Academy. It's perfect. It's actually pretty solid that you got that domain. I I paid a lot. Let's just say I paid a lot of money for it. <laughs> I, I really wanted it. I love it. How much did you pay for it? <laughs> $1,500 American. The most okay. I've ever paid for a domain. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, and then our, our, our mutual friend Caleb Wojcik asks, uh, ask him how, whether getting more views on certain types of videos like van life content positively or negatively influences what he chooses to create and publish next. <laughs> I feel like we kind of covered this lo- already, but yeah. I mean, if you look at my, my track record, I have not been good at even following what's already worked on my channel. <laughs> and if I do, it's sometimes in a half baked way. Uh, I'm thinking about this right now. So my wife and I have, again, I think it's important with van life stuff to make you know, people sometimes assume that if you are posting living out of a van, that that means 24, seven, 365, you're always in the van. And for me, it's always been important to say, Hey, we, we appreciate the idea of having a home base to go back to. And we're in between home bases right now. We don't have a suite anywhere that we're renting or any of those kinds of things. The goal has never been to just stay in the van all the time, but we are in it for this chapter because it's actually fairly convenient to travel with a newborn before they can start tearing things apart and need more attention. It's it's a simpler system, as Dave knows, and they don't walk into the closet while you're recording a podcast because they can't walk. So we've been thinking right now, we are on the road currently, and I'm processing these questions right now of I'm catching up on some of the videos that I've shot in the past that I want to re that I actually want to get out there. And once I'm caught back up to real time and I'm not sitting on short films that aren't released, what do I want to make next? And I don't know the answer to that quite yet. Part of me really wants to make sure that more good storytelling education is going out there. I'm aware that videos that are titled storytelling focused don't get clicked on. It's everyone knows storytelling is important, but watching storytelling content isn't always interesting. So I'm trying to think through right now how will I approach this fall? Because I could go collab driven. I'm going to the main area where most Canadian YouTubers are. Uh, we had planned to go to sunny places, but the border's not doing the border thing right now. And, you know, we could go over there and I could really try to leverage making collab videos with people and try to provide value on their channels and get them on my channel. And that would maybe be, that would probably be what Gary V would tell me to do. And if I end up doing that or not, I guess depends on if it feels natural and effortless. I'm not very good at chasing down some of those things if I don't see it as being important. And I guess we'll have to look back three months from now what kind of content I ended up making and if I pivoted to what was doing well. But I would venture to guess I'm going to try and make some family travel stuff now that I have my my A7S Mark III and I've I've you know, we're on the road. I'm, I'm probably going to try and make some family travel vlogs, but I won't be able to help myself, but try add story messages into those. And if those do well, I would be, I'd be happy. And if it's just channel average, that's, that's okay. And then this last question is from at Dave Mays. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I know you had the luxury of, of shooting with Casey Neistat. You also got to actually help film a vlog i think even with dan mace if i'm correct um is that right no just with casey okay so just with casey i think it might have been right when the 368 thing was happening and maybe dan was kind of getting into the picture but regardless 
he was what currently would... deported. <laughs> Actually, I, okay. I yeah. stayed in the apartment that was his. That was right. And all okay. his stuff I knew was, there was in there. It was like it was a ghost story. It was it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I knew there was some sort of connection there. Yeah, that was it. You stayed at, at his apartment because he was deported. Um, what was what were some of the takeaways with shooting with Casey and seeing him work? You mentioned how that was was really impactful for you, and and how in the past working with people who are better than you and and seeing them work teaches you more. Can you share with a lot of our listeners who probably look up to Casey who might not have the opportunity to do that? What what was it like working with him? What were some of the things that he did that really stood out to you? That's a great question, Dave. And I think it, it ties back to how I originally went back to his channel. I think I found Casey originally. My mom sent me the bike lanes video back. I love that my mom found Casey Neistat for me. And I watched his one video, moved on with my life. And then later... Later, someone was talking and saying, talking about storytelling. And anytime I see that word, I, I get interested. And they were saying, there's this guy, Casey, who's doing daily vlogs. His storytelling's amazing. The filmmaking's really gritty. He includes shots that are out of focus. He beats up his cameras. It's all about story. And I felt like I was having the reverse problem where my content was time lapses, all the stuff, but without the story. And I was thinking, huh. I would like to see this guy and see what he does. What's he, what's he all about? And I, after 800 videos, again, I got pulled all in and the storytelling was phenomenal. And you could digest even from an outside perspective, breaking down why his storytelling from the outside is so good. But you start to think, hey, it's probably hard to produce that many videos. That's probably hard. But the creating of the video must be easy. The doing of it must be easy. He's, He's doing it every day and it must just be right in the sweet spot that it must be so easy. And that is the immediate failures we have when we watch things from people we like is we don't actually know the circumstances that produced the thing. And we can sometimes watch someone's stuff and go, oh, I could have done that better. Or we could watch someone's stuff and go, oh, I could never do that. And in the case, in the case of Casey Neistat, when I watch his really well put together videos where they hold your attention all the way through. He might be the only channel that I actually watch the videos all the way through. I'm ADD out the nines and I just don't enjoy watching videos beginning to end. That's not, that's not for me. <laughs> the only time I do that is when I'm watching Casey Neistat stuff, literally. And when I'm watching, you know, a TV show and we're watching it on a TV. So for him to hold my attention all the way through, I'm like, man, he's doing such a good job of holding the attention, driving each and every video around a single point. This is phenomenal. It must be so easy. And to be there in person as he's executing on a video, though, the one specifically I'm thinking of here is one we filmed with Jocko Willink, where it's why Navy SEAL wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. And the concept was he's going to film a I helped with the interview and a few scenes where he's ripping around the city, but I mean, it's, he, he did the setup at the beginning and the closing all without me ever being there, but I helped with the stuff at the studio and in the city. And he came into that day already knowing what kind of video he was going to make. He was going to film every hour of his day to like do a day in the life, but then also merge it with this interview with Jocko to add, you know, a level of depth for those that want to learn lessons from why a Navy SEAL wakes up at. 4.30 in the morning every day. And there was a point in the day where he had to record a sit-down talking piece to tie together a lot of the shots that he already filmed. 
some of us filmmakers find ourselves in these positions where we shot the B-roll and we go, okay, how do I piece this all together? That's a pretty normal experience. And Casey's talking through the app, the footage that he already has. I've got the clips of me making pancakes with my daughter. I've got the footage of me skateboarding here. I've got the setup for the Jocko interview, but what's the voiceover that's going to tie all the pieces together? And I kid you not, I think he got physically uncomfortable thinking through the idea of how do I make this make sense with the viewer? He's He's walking back and forth in the studio, asking that question over and over again, out loud to me. I'm, I'm just honored that he is asking me anything. That's mind blowing to me. But I think the reason why he's willing to ask a Canadian filmmaker that just showed up at his studio, this question is because he understands that attention is really important. And if I find it interesting as someone who's just standing there, then the chances are someone at home might. So he's bouncing these ideas off and he's like thinking it all through. And he's experienced, like, it seems like he's going through, I don't actually know if it was hurtful to him or not, but it, it seemed like he was actually experiencing pain on behalf of the viewer of what it, what it would actually take to get the concept in his head to make sense to them. And he's pacing back and forth. He's pacing back and forth, thinking it through. How do we make this make sense? He's saying lines out loud. And then suddenly it all clicks. He sits down, nails, nails it in just one take, gets all the segments. And I'm just watching this go down like baffled because that is not my experience when I, when I, my biggest moment here is just when you watch the video and it seems so straightforward to have made it's because there was effort there was so much work to make it effortless and it's so I, and then i'm realizing you know mr beast talks about this all the time with viral content we value the title and the thumbnail so highly and we'll spend months thinking of good titles and thumbnails because the concept in that world of virality is everything and then the execution on it is the brand so you're not going to get tricked by someone with a bad brand twice because you go they didn't follow through on the concept the first time they're not going to the second time but because he follows through on the concept and delivers on it it's in, it, you know when you see a mr beast title and thumbnail he's going to do what he says and that alone is phenomenal but he puts so much value on the concept and they, people are actually thinking about this. And in Casey's case, watching him physically stress about making it sense to the viewer at home, he didn't have this high and mighty headspace about I'm the artist. I know what's best. I'll make whatever the frick I want. He didn't, he didn't approach it like that. He thought I'm making this for viewers. How can I make it clear to them what it is that I'm saying and watching that go down? You never see that when you watch the finished video, but Man, because I mean, again, we could probably go back and forth about our own examples of where we don't do this well, but sometimes I'll just sit down and record for endless, <laughs> endless amounts of time. And later I'll try to sift through and pull out of it a clear thread. And we're losing from the beginning there. Like that is not a good way to get a cohesive flow. And so that lesson for me, watching him care so deeply about how it made sense to the viewer I just realized, yes, he's phenomenal at what he does, but he's putting in the work to get there every single video. And, and I'm, and I'm not doing that level of effort, which is why I'm not, which is why I'm not making videos that are the same way in my, you know, in my own style, I'm not making videos that are as engaging in my own voice, whatever that means, because I'm not putting that level of effort. And that's where a video like the, the birth of my daughter that is a video where I put, I went above and beyond on the effort of how would this get experienced by a viewer? 
and I think it shows when you watch it, because I think it's clear as you go through the experience, there was intentionality put into the retelling. And Casey's the master at this. I think it's the underappreciated skill set that he has. And and uh, I respect him so much for being able to do this day in and day out. And he's he's doing it. Well, that's an incredible behind the scenes uh, story. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, during that time, he was just in this groove of posting every day. So I would imagine his headspace was just at this kind of Zen-like place where he really was, his mind was just on firing on all cylinders. And it's cool to hear that, you know, behind the scenes story. Um, he also, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, he was, it just worked out that YouTube came about because the style of filmmaking that he's always had back when YouTube wasn't even a thing, uh, just fits perfectly for YouTube. And, you know, he's got a de- over a decade of experience doing this type of stuff. So, um, if you're his archive is, is his archive blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's really amazing. And uh, I think the 10,000 hour rule applies here for sure. Um, if you hear that story and you're like overwhelmed and, and maybe a little depressed about not being capable of that, you got to put the time in, you got to, you got to have the experience and, you know, for Levi and myself too, like we both entered YouTube with filmmaking experience prior to when we became quote YouTubers. So I had people come up to me and say, how are you doing this? It's like, well, I was a magician for six years and I know how to perform. And I was a filmmaker for eight years and you just combine those two things together to make a YouTuber. Like, so people who are in high school who want to be YouTubers, people who are in college who want to pursue this. If you have zero video experience and zero performing on camera experience, it's just going to take time and that, that's okay. Be patient. It's This is a, a lifelong journey that we're all on. And, uh, you know, to hear that story about Casey is really inspiring because he really has become a master at his craft. So, Yeah, and it's it's so easy to watch someone else's stuff and go, the only reason why that's working is because of this. The only reason why that works is if I was in New York City, if I had a boosted board, if <laughs> yeah. I had, we could make that, we could nip, that list could go on forever. And what someone like Peter Kemp coming to the platform taught me was, you know, he lives in a very boring area of Canada, actually. <laughs> and he made it massively interesting with that filmmaker angle and showed kind of just showed me and everyone in the filmmaker space, you can make titles and thumbnails and concepts and deliver on them in a more interesting way than what people are currently doing. And, and that's just, you know, that that's cool. It's, I respect it so much, the skill set of pulling that off and delivering on it. It's, it's pretty epic. Have you met Peter and uh, worked with him at all? I haven't worked with him, but I got a chance to meet him at 368. We were at a, I think they called it the Thanksgiving friends of three, six, eight Thanksgiving. And I got a, I got a chat with him about his bucket shot thing before. I don't think it was released yet. And it was fun. Just kind of, I love the story stuff again. So, you know, I, I don't consume tons of the filmmaker space content, but anytime one of the people in the filmmaker space makes a short film or a finished thing, my ears perk up and he just did one on his 5 million subscribers. And I wouldn't consider myself like a daily watcher, but when that video goes out, I'm like, oh man, this is a story. I, I want to see this one specifically. And and so it's fun chatting about that stuff with other creators. I love it. Did you see uh, Josh's uh, anam- Anamorphia 
film. Which film is this? Oh, Joshio, Make Art Now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Anamorphia, when did this come out? Dude, uh, yeah, uh, it's brilliant. It's it's a film make. Yeah, just search it on. You'll find it. Watch it. Um, like, is it recent or a while ago? Uh, I, I, I think it'd be probably like two or three months ago. So it's fairly I miss recent. this, man. Okay. It's huge, dude. It is so good. I, I, I called him after I watched it and I was like, dude, this, this changes everything, bro. Like, this is awesome. Um, check it out. It's fabulous. Oh, that's so good. I'm excited to see it now. I miss things because I end up going off grid for a while that <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the downsides. Well, I think, uh, we've come to a closing part of this. We could probably go on for hours, dude. We're this is a great conversation. Uh, thank you for being on. Is there anything that you'd like to leave with our listeners um, before we exit this interview? Because we could totally go on for another 10 hours probably, but uh, we'll have to save that for another episode. <laughs> Fantasizing for the day you'll get your turn at bat and you'll knock a home run. That fantasy is not real. You need to put the reps in. And you get the reps in by just showing up over and over and over. And you can't listen to someone say, this is the pathway, do it, because your pathway is going to end up be different. And you have to make the mistakes to course correct. And if you aren't putting in enough at-bats to get enough mistakes, you don't know where to go next. And you aren't learning from those valuable moments that end up steering the rest of your life, you know, and show up to bat time and time again. Don't fantasize about the one day when all the pieces are right, you'll be able to nail it because... There's a sad chance that that day will never come. Wow. Very powerful. <laughs> Amazing way to close it up. Levi Allen, thank you so much for being on the Golden Hour podcast, for being a fan of Polar Pro, by the way. We're going to send you some of those new Peter McKinnon filters. Um, Let's do it, man. <laughs> we'll have to have you on uh, again and see where you're at a year from now when that baby's a year older. Um, one <laughs> year probably won't have time crazy. for a podcast at a one-year-old, but we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, once they start running around, once they start talking back to you, it's it, it's another whole stage, and it's so cute in its own way. I can't wait for you to experience that. So, It was great having you on, my friend. Thank you for, for being on. Appreciate it, Dave. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Levi Allen. Why don't you guys reach out to him on Instagram and Twitter and let him know your thoughts. I'm certainly inspired by the content that he creates and I'm excited to see what he continues to make on his channel. We're always looking for feedback for the Golden Hour podcast, so make sure to follow me on Twitter at Dave Mays and reach out and say, hey, I listened to the show and here's some thoughts or suggestions or maybe even guest suggestions that you may have. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio and we'll see you next Tuesday.